Auditorium B. We're glad you're here this morning. We're also glad many of you are watching, listening online all over uh, the country, actually, and even around the world. Now, I just, before I get preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, who was like unbelievably blessed and encouraged by last week with the baptisms? Like, like unbelievable. And we just, we need to continue to see God in those moments where I was in Auditorium B uh, baptizing people. One woman I was baptizing and, and she was an older woman and I loved her testimony. I was like crying in the tank and Joanna's crying and, and she's crying when she was saying, you know, I've done church my whole life. And she listed every single thing she had done in another church context. And she said, but I didn't need Jesus. And then I realized my need for him and I'm declaring how much I need him. Isn't that unbelievable? Like a lifetime and She's declaring the new thing. Just awesome. Awesome. And so we need to keep praying and celebrating as God is doing new things. But as Pastor Dave was rightly saying this morning, if our theme this whole year is kingdom come, then what we're about to dive into in the Sermon on the Mount makes so much sense. As we've been learning of as a community over the last little while, the kingdom of God is not a place yet. The kingdom of God is not the nation of Israel. The kingdom of God isn't the church. The kingdom of God is never found in geography anywhere. The kingdom of God is any space or place where the reign and rule of God is welcomed and embraced and accepted. If you're a Christian here this morning, that is, you are truly a follower of Jesus, then you are a member of the kingdom because you have welcomed Jesus to be your savior and your king. See, without Jesus, the kingdom is not found. You can never separate the king from his own presence, and you can never separate his presence from what he is ruling. So the question we're going to be asking actually much of this year, since our theme is kingdom come, What does the kingdom of God really look like in everyday life? And that's why we've chosen the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you've got a Bible this morning, physically or virtually, we'd love you to take out your device or your paper Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. There's an abbreviated version version of this in Luke, but we're going to be in Matthew 5. The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous part of Jesus' teaching, no doubt about it at all. Now, let me put this sort of like in C4 language for all of us. If spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power to see the kingdom grow, and spiritual disciplines are the guaranteed place of transformation as we walk with the king of the kingdom, then the Sermon on the Mount, this is what we're going to look at this year, the Sermon on the Mount is what the kingdom looks like worked out in your everyday life. The the Sermon on the Mount is the ethics, it's the lifestyle of those who already are in the kingdom of God. This is for those who have already said yes to Jesus. Many, many religions love the Sermon on the Mount and quote the Sermon on the Mount, but they reject who said it. But you cannot do that, for the one who gives it, gives it authority. And so what we're going to dive into this year is this. If we really as a church are not just putting neon signs and cool signs on the sides of our auditoriums and venues, but we are sincere before God himself that we are desiring that God himself and his kingdom himself would come, then we are saying we want to look like what we're about to study. 
See, the Sermon on the Mount is what the kingdom of God looks like, feels like, smells like. If you want to truly say, oh, there's the kingdom and there's the kingdom in everyday life, it will be reflected here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what we're about to walk through this year is not just Jesus sort of imagining a world that is impossible. This is not escapist. This is not fantasy. This is not utopia. Many, many people read the Sermon on the Mount and were so overwhelmed by its calling, they said it's irrelevant or it will only happen in heaven. No. What we're about to walk through this morning is the grand reversal of the status quo. And this is God breaking into the now. This is the new heavens and the new earth, a foretaste of what will be permanent happening in the now. And if our cry as a church sincerely is, your kingdom come, O God, then Jesus comes back to us in this moment and says, what I preached 2,000 years ago is doable, possible, expected. Jesus says to his church this morning, this is what I expect you to look like if you're a member of my kingdom. Jesus begins like this in Matthew 5.1. You can read it with me in your Bibles. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Okay, stop. This isn't Matthew being casual. This isn't Matthew going, well, I was hanging out with a guy, you know, and he went up a hill and that was sort of weird and he sat down. Let me write that down. No, no. This is being written to a Jewish audience that has said yes to Jesus already. Matthew's main audience are Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews. And immediately, any person who knows their Old Testament starts making a correlation most of us miss. See, Jesus, it says in Greek, went up and sat on a mountain. Moses went up on a mountain. There is a direct connection between Moses and Jesus. Actually, there are five references to Moses going up on a mountain, sitting with God, encountering the glory of God, meeting God, coming back down the mountain, and declaring to the people who God is and what he had said. And this we know is true, and we know this is Matthew's intent, because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount... When Jesus descends the mountain, Matthew quotes Exodus 34.9 verbatim. In other words, here's the point. Before you read the Sermon on the Mount and say, wow, those are great moral teachings, you have to know who's giving you the sermon and you have to accept who's saying it. See, Jesus is the new Moses. Think about it this way. Moses was the first formal leader of the Jewish race. He was the first one to write down the written word of God. He was the first one to codify the idea of one true living God. He was the first grand leader, grand author, and grand lawgiver. Moses authenticated what God had said by doing great miracles. Moses went into Egypt, delivered the people out of terrible leadership and false gods, and brought them towards something called the promised land. Moses is the great lawgiver, the great miracle worker, and the great savior. And in the middle of that, he actually shows the people of God what it looks like to live a holy life. Well, Jesus, years later, comes and he actually brings the kingdom of heaven itself. And Jesus is the greater teacher, and so he has even more authority to speak into our lives. He doesn't replace Moses. He fulfills everything that Moses started. Actually, Jesus is the God that Moses was meeting on the mountain. Have you thought about that? 
Jesus is the greater miracle worker. He's the greater savior. He leads the whole world out of sin, out of death, out of the devil, and exposes all other gods for what they really are. He's the model of what a godly life looks like, and he promises us and guarantees us a greater promised land, eternal life in the now and eternal life in the coming not yet. See, if you want the kingdom of God and you want the ethics of the kingdom of God, oh, you will want the king of the kingdom, and the new Moses is the greater. Moses and his name is Jesus Christ. So Jesus comes and he sits on a mountain and he says all of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, I now, I now fulfill. And he begins to speak. He begins to teach. He begins to outline and expound what the the kingdom of heaven feels like, how it's found in you, how it's found within us. But notice, notice where Jesus begins. Jesus begins his teaching, not with what it looks like, but actually how you enter in. Here's the first thing he says. These are called Beatitudes, each verse. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God, same thing. Now, can we just stop and, what's the first word right there? Can everyone say it really loud? One, two, three. Blessed. Now, that is a churchy word, is it not? Mm, I'm blessed. Really? What does that mean? I blessed my food. You're blessed. White hanky's out. No one has a clue what's going on. Words matter, but we lose meaning. So when I hear blessed, a thousand ideas come into my mind and your mind. But since Jesus is going to repeat it in a repeated manner, tell us that we're blessed. Let's find out what blessing is and what it's not. Blessing can mean happiness. You can transliterate it from from Greek to this. It can mean happiness, but it cannot be reduced to happiness. Now, we know this because of something in Scripture. Humans can bless God, and God chooses to bless humans. So it's deeper than happiness. So what does it mean? Well, you may be shocked to find out that the word blessed in its core form means you are approving and you are accepted. Can I say that again? You are approving and you are accepted. So when you bless God, you are saying, God, I approve of you. I accept you. I say yes to all that you are and all that you are up to. And when God shows up in your life and he blesses you, he's actually saying you are approved. You are accepted. It's sort of like this legal, official, and relational thing all tied into one. This word blessed is used when our sins are forgiven, when we experience eternal life, when God shows up. Let me say it like this. Is there anything more powerful in the universe than the creator of heaven and earth walking into your life and saying, I now approve of you. Blessed. Blessed isn't BMWs. Blessed isn't health and wealth. Blessed is right standing and right presence. When God says you are blessed, he forgives you and he promises he will be with you and among us. So let me put it this way. Blessed is right standing and right relationship and right presence that produces a right life. Can I say that again? Blessing or blessedness is right standing and right relationship and right presence that produces a right life. And by the way, we would say that is truly what happiness should be defined by. Jesus comes this morning through his scriptures to us, to you in Auditorium B, to many of you watching online on a plane or train. And this is what he begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, this should shock a lot of us if we're taking it at face value. You telling me only poor people get into heaven? And by the way, what do you mean by poor? Is this saying that those that have nothing, those that are financially totally destroyed, is this what Matthew's talking about? Is this saying that if you have money of any sort, if you're middle class and above, sorry, you're hell bound? Like, what is this saying? Notice what Matthew said. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. This is a spiritual condition. See, Jesus is desperately trying to, under, to, to teach us, to reveal to us how all of humanity enters into the kingdom come. Blessed are those that are lowly, he says. Blessed are those that are humble. Blessed are those that truly know their true condition before God himself. Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament. Poor in spirit is not a new quote. Isaiah 57, 15, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and poor in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Or, or Isaiah 66, 2, these are the ones, God says, that I look, with, uh, look with, with favor. Those who are humble and poor or contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. Jesus' first words, this first beatitude is is powerful, it is penetrating, it is all-consuming. See, one small verse defines every single person's spiritual bankruptcy before God. The religious, the unreligious, the devoted, the uncommitted, the moral, the immoral, the law-abiding, the non-law-abiding, all of us, our true condition before a holy God, Jesus says, is poor, lowly, weak, deficient, reduced, and pitiable. Only when a person humbles themselves, only when a person decides to accept reality and not believe fantasy and admits that they are in trouble without and before God, that is not when they become poor in spirit, that is when they acknowledge what they already are. This is where the ancient cry of the church said in liturgical forms all the time is used, God, God, Christ have mercy, God be merciful to me, a sinner. This is saying when a person admits they have a deep longing for God, that's when they enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this isn't about self-hate. This is not about personal value. This is not legalism or if you grew up in a place where you were told you were a worm and nothing. No, no, you have profound value. This is an honest acknowledgement of the truth that human beings, apart from God through Jesus, are lost. Or as one theologian said, this is a full, honest, factual Conscious, conscientious recognition before God of our personal, ready, moral unworthiness. This should make so much sense to us, especially we who are followers of Jesus. Jesus comes after he's baptized and after he confronts the demonic in the wilderness. And then he goes and he opens up the scroll from Isaiah and he gives his life's mission statement by quoting Isaiah. And he says in Luke 4.18 what? The spirit of the Lord is upon me or is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the who? Say it loud. The poor. Us. Only when we see our great sin. Only when we admit we cannot overcome death. Only when we stop the illusion that we'll never escape death will we see our need for Jesus. Only when a human being humbles themselves and cries out, save me, Jesus, only then does the kingdom of heaven and its doors open. This is the great leveler. This statement by Jesus is the great leveler. This puts all people on the same ground. Both the rich and the poor all need to do this. It's what the old hymn writer so long ago penned when he said, nothing in my hand I bring. 
Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to thy fountain fly. Wash me, save me. Wash me, Savior. Wash me, Savior, or I die. It's what Paul would pen so long later after Jesus' resurrection. He, the brilliant theologian of his time. He who would probably have two to three PhDs in Jewish theology. Who trusted in everything he did. And he met Jesus and he said, it's all worthless now. Why? Because I am poor in spirit. And so he penned these words in Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace that you are saved. Through faith. It's not from yourself, it's a gift from God, not by works so no one can boast. See, this is why salvation, this is why becoming a Christian, this is why entering the kingdom of God cannot be earned or bought or manipulated. Why? Because we are poor in spirit and poor people bring nothing to the table. But our king doesn't leave us poor. He makes us rich. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you see what happened in one moment? Maybe you can catch the the historic weight of what Jesus did. See, at that moment, he he undervalued, he undercut every single Jewish community's hope that the kingdom of God would be brought politically, religiously, militarily. He shocked the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Sadducees, the crowds, his own disciples. He undoes all the hopes, aspirations, and dreams of both the religious, organizational, political, and military leaders of all time because he comes and says, do you not know that life changes? at its core is in here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It reads like this, happy are the unhappy. This is the emotional side, by the way, of poverty of spirit. This is not saying Christians are called to be depressed their whole lives. This is not saying we were baptized in lemon juice and, oh, woe's me, my life sucks, I'm a Christian. No! This is not what this is. We're supposed to be people of joy and happiness and love culture and art and food and life. We're supposed to Sabbath, but... This is saying that when you realize your real standing before God, there will be weeping for a time. This is the emotional side of poverty of spirit when suddenly you realize that God, God is holy and we are not. And we have exalted ourselves before him and said, I am God. And he says, oh no, oh no, you're not. And in that moment, we weep. We are broken. We mourn. See, all human beings are going to meet Jesus as Savior or Judge. There is no in-between. But for we who want Savior, the beginning of the relationship as the good news of the kingdom is given is mourning, then life. Mourning, then light. Mourning, then hope. It's what Paul would pencil again later in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He said, godly sorrow brings repentance. Can I sh- can, let me say this again. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves what? Say it loud, really loud, what? No regret. But worldly sorrow, it brings death. When we mourn before God and we meet God and we repent before God, it leaves no regret. Why? Because Jesus shows up and says, now I will comfort you. And there is nothing like the comfort of Jesus. 
He does not allow us to stay in a mourning state before the holiness of God. He soothes us, reassures us, calms us, revives us. He relieves us. Jesus comes and he brings ease. And when we know our deep need and we humble ourselves and cry out before the holiness of God, woe is me for I am a sinner. There in that space, and many of us can give testimony this morning, there in that space, God, like an incoming, unstoppable tide, meets us there in that moment of his overwhelming holiness like a flood he pours in and over and he says now I comfort you for you've met my holiness now meet my love what is the comfort of Jesus Jesus comes and says you're forgiven he comes and says you're declared as a son of daughter or God of God we're given eternal life he says we are clean we don't need to prove ourselves anymore we don't need to hide from God anymore we don't need to hide from other human beings anymore he says that you are mine and I'm yours he said you are now blessed you are in right standing I'm never going to leave you I'm never going to forsake you when death is facing you and you're on that hospital bed or in a car or you're listen let me tell you at that moment I promise you my spirit will tell you you will be raised from the dead like me and when that old age and the old kingdom is finally gone you will arise to a new place where there will be no more death you will never attend a funeral again you will never mourn no one will weep in pain anymore no disease, no brokenness, it is done. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We as Christians have a comfort that makes no sense to the world, but we understand it is not from us, it's from him. When God walks into our lives personally, No matter what your theological background and church tradition is, when he really walks in, you don't stay the same. When you meet the living God of heaven and earth, you can't stay the same. You cannot expose yourself to the holiness and the love of Jesus and remain the same. And so Jesus, as he's outlining what the kingdom of God looks like and is, he begins to move the vertical to the horizontal and he begins to outline to us as Christians how our relationships begin to change over a lifetime because of the unnatural, beautiful, holy love of God that's found in us through Jesus. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. You know, meekness isn't weakness. Weakness in our culture is hated. And much of the time we make the mistake I did for years that meekness was the same thing. No, no. Meekness is not indecisiveness. Meekness is not timidity. Meekness is profound power under control. It is putting God's interests and other people's interests over your own, though you have power to do other things. See, let me walk out the logic for you. If you really know you're poor in spirit, and if you've mourned over sin, you'll never think you're better than anyone else in the fullest sense because you have understood the work of Jesus in you. So meekness will begin to mark you. Christians who are meek do not seek revenge. Christians who are growing in meekness start shedding their lives of wrath and anger and violence and theft and brutal acts both found in their lives, in their families, and, oh, let me say this, and in their business practices. You cannot reduce the kingdom of God to your personal life. When Jesus shows up, your work life has changed, your thinking has changed, your family has changed, the region has changed because you really are being changed. Blessed are those who have profound power, but it is now under control because of the love of God. 
It was the famous English pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great voice of the last century, who said the man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and other people would think of him as well as they do and treat him or you as well as they do. This, of course, should produce, he wrote, a gentleness and humility and sensitivity and patience in the dealings with others. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. And then Jesus, as he's talking, and he's only a few verses in, then he begins to outline what I would say is the normal Christian life. This one little verse defines the kingdom. This one little verse is our deal. This one, this one little verse has to be over the doorposts of our lives. Lipstick, write it right across the mirror. This has to be in our phones and our cars. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger for this thing. Now in the Bible, there's two forms of Righteousness. They're not contradictory. They're two sides of a coin. Righteousness can be right standing, the legal sense, justification. But this is not what Jesus is referring to here. This is right living. This is godliness. This is holiness. This is the ethics of the kingdom. And Jesus comes as he's sitting on this mountain, now as the new Moses, setting what he's, he's giving the vision for what humanity always was supposed to look like since Eden had lost. And he said, blessed, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Have you ever really been hungry? Like hungry and thirsty are strong words. We live in a culture where we just go to Loblaws and drive through things every single time we're hungry. Many of us in this room have never experienced real hunger or real thirst unless we've participated in fasting. And then we see when we do that discipline how much we hate it. Anyone want to say Amen. Yeah, mm -hmm, mm, yes, right? We haven't, listen, he comes and says, blessed are those who are so desperate for the righteousness of heaven and they will be filled. It was the old Scottish Christian that cried out, oh God, oh God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. So what Jesus will say later, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. When you meet Jesus and you meet his love and you meet his presence over time, you will hunger and thirst and find you cannot get along without righteousness. <clears throat> this is the cry, oh God, your kingdom come. This is the cry of our church, oh God, do anything, anything, anything you must for your glory and my freedom so the world will see Jesus clearly. This is a, a clarion call, a deep call, an expression for a longing to establish God, to establish his kingdom in us more and more and more. It's when Paul penned at the end of his life in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know him in the power of his resurrection, participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow obtaining the resurrection from the dead. Oh, Paul knew Jesus. Paul knew Jesus at this moment more than anyone sitting in this room or auditorium, B or online, will ever know in their life. And at the end of his life, what does he say? Oh, oh, how I need you more, Jesus. How I hunger and I thirst for the things of heaven. How I thung, hunger and thirst for the things of God. How I hunger and thirst for you, Jesus. If you do this, you will be filled. I cannot stand so many churches that claim that if you claim things, you'll be okay. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, have enough faith and you'll never, you'll never be sick. Except the pastor saying it's wearing glasses. I'm always confused. 
you know, just have enough faith and God will give you a huge car. Like, so much of that's going to burn away. But let me say to you with authority this morning, you can claim this one. If you hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, you will be filled. God, like a moth to the flame, will show up when you hunger for righteousness. He will give you righteousness. And the Greek word for filled means bloated. You will be overstuffed by God here. This is like the ultimate buffet spiritually. It's guaranteed. And unlike so much buffets, it's going to sit with you much longer than 10 hours. So, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be filled. You notice the progress? Anyone who has encountered the holiness of God, seen their consuming need, confessed their sin, and has been forgiven will want and hunger more of the new kingdom and less of the old. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Don't read this in a legalistic way. Well, I'm sorry, you weren't very merciful today, so your mercy quotient's down, so I'm sorry. God's not that... No, no, no. This is over time. For you who have been experiencing forgiveness, oh, how you will be merciful to others more and more. I love when one pastor said to be meek, is to acknowledge to others that we're sinners. And to be merciful is to, be, to have compassion on others because they're sinners too. Blessed are those who are merciful, right? The heart of our movement is mercy. He says next, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Notice it's not the brilliant who see God. It's not the intellectual who see God. It's not the emotional savvy, uh, the profound entrepreneur. The pure in heart see God. They will know God. They will walk with God. And notice they're pure in heart already. This is done by embracing the one giving the sermon, Jesus. He makes us pure. He makes us approved. He makes us accepted. He lets us walk with God himself. And so Jesus is saying, since you are pure in heart, walk in purity. You've been made pure, now walk in purity. See, Jesus had no time for outward conformity. He had no time for playing games of doing church, but not deeply being changed. He says, since and if you've met me, you've been made pure, so now let it spill out into your everyday life. It was Paul who wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1-2, when he said, to the church and God in Corinth, to those holy in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. I used to read this and get so confused. Well, I'm holy. You're telling me to be holy. Which one is it? And he said, yes. And I said, I'm confused. Here's his point. Since you already are holy by the work of Jesus, you have been made pure. Now walk in purity in your life. It is positional holiness and everyday holiness. And this is where, everyone, listen please, if you're getting distracted by Facebook, put it down. This is a moment. This is where hiddenness is worked out. This is where the heart of the last three years is true. That we have asked Jesus, the Lord of the church, not to hold back anything. And we've invited him into our church to deal with all sin, all secrets, all motives within our church. We sing such a dangerous song in this church. I always think of Jerome singing this one song. It's here for you. To you our hearts are open. Nothing here is hidden. You are our only desire. Really? You really sing that? You're my own. Nothing here is hidden. This is the ancient cry of the pure of heart. We are saying to the Lord of the church, the giver of the Sermon on the Mount, you come, Lord Jesus, you come into every painful historic experience and I will not stop you. You come into every situation while I still hate someone else and you deal with me. You come into every struggle, every sin, every moment. I invite you. Nothing here is hidden. You are my only desire. Come have your way. Blessed are those who are pure in spirit. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. 
Blessed are those who do not resist God, but continually say, I will not hide from you. Come, change me. I want to look like the Son of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He's the Prince of Peace. The gospel is called the Gospel of Peace. God in the book of Romans is called the God of Peace. Now, this should bring up a huge question for us this morning. Let me touch on it for a moment. Does this mean all Christians have to be pacifists? I mean, it sure seems that way. Now, since Jesus spoke these words, the church, genuine followers have struggled. Some have said yes. Some have said no. Some say we have to be absolute pacifists. Others say no. This is talking about interpersonal relationships, not international bodies. And maybe we need to step up and stop wickedness. Christians have been divided on this, and we are probably in this church too. I love what one Anabaptist person wrote when he said, so what do we think? He said, well, regardless of our posture towards the state or the military or other countries, the goal of the follower of Jesus is peace. But we are to admit that that means isn't clear here with Jesus. That is, while we should all desire peace, we may differ on how. Some Christians the best way think the best way to get it is through military strength sufficient enough to intimidate other countries to dropping their military plans while others think the way of Jesus requires us to drop our military intimidation and negotiate in love and justice and peace. You're going to say, well, John, what's your opinion? I'm not going to give you one. But I want to say this this morning. Are you known as a peacemaker yet? Are you known for making peace in this church or are you the division maker Are you known for peace in your family or are you the crap disturber? Are you known for peace at work or are you on the war path? Are you for peace or do you love violence? Let me speak especially to many of the men this morning. Do you love and crave violence in movies and books? Do you sit for hours? Are you intoxicated with video games where you continually shoot people in the head and think it's okay because it's a fantasy figure? Jesus comes to you this morning and says, I am a man and I am God of peace. Remember all the things that you love and you drink in by the hours will not happen in the new heavens and the new earth. When you meet me face to face, you will never want at all any of these things. So why do you spend your life gluttonizing yourselves with non-peaceful acts? Jesus comes to many of you and says, oh, let my kingdom come. Let me convict you and make you people of peace, both online and in your mind and in your heart and in your life. The world needs peacemakers, and peacemakers are not politicians. They are Christians. God changes the heart and makes us so different that it makes no sense. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then Jesus ends by saying something most uncomfortable And yet, most obvious, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you people insult you and they persecute you and they falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Notice this, because of who? Me. Rejoice. Have a party. Have a latte. Go to Starbucks. Celebrate. Be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Some of you go, oh, Pastor John, I'm so persecuted. No, you're not. You're a jerk. Oh, I'm persecuted for Jesus. No, you have a political agenda, and you're using Jesus' name as a cover. 
Jesus is not in the conservative party, the NDP party, or the liberal party. He's not a Republican or a Democrat. He has actually people in both both movements, and he likes only part of each plank. He is the Lord of everything. He's above all that. He's above all that. Jesus comes and he says, listen very carefully. You will be persecuted for righteousness when you don't cheat on your taxes and people think you're crazy. You're being persecuted for righteousness when you choose not to lie and people think you should. You're being persecuted for righteousness when you decide not to steal. You're going to be persecuted for righteousness when you're at work and you actually work unbelievably hard and lots of other people are being lazy and you could get away with it, but you say, no, I am a Christ follower. You're being persecuted for righteousness when you stand up and say, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and you offend other religions. You're going to be persecuted when you say heaven and hell are real. We've got to have the conversation. You're being persecuted for righteousness when you hold up the word of God in sincerity, not in arrogance, and say this is the ultimate standard for faith, life, practice, sexuality. You fill in the blank. You will be persecuted for righteousness. And when that happens, and though you are winsome, when it happens, you celebrate. Why? Because Jesus said it's a normal part of the Christian Christian life. So many of us as Canadians are so shocked when we're persecuted. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Did I do something wrong? I didn't mean to offend you. I'm just here in this Tim Hortons line. We're talking. No, don't you understand? It doesn't matter how winsome you are. It doesn't matter how kind you are. And please be those things. You need to, we need to be people of deep intellect and deep passion and deep right thinking. But no matter how winsome you are and kind you, eventually someone's going to turn and say, No. And when they do that, don't get angry at them. Remember that Jesus said that this actually is what it's all about. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who knew a lot about suffering for Jesus, who wrote with every beatitude, with every verse, the gulf is widening between the disciples and the people, and their call to come forth from among the people becomes increasingly manifest. Some of you are sitting here this morning and say, John... um, So give me the summary notes so I can go. What he's saying. Okay, here it is. This is Jesus' own simple definition of how you enter the kingdom and what every normal Christian life has to look like. Can I say that again? Has to look like. This is what the kingdom feels like. This is what the kingdom smells like. This is what the kingdom looks like in you over time as it's planted in you. This is the manifesto of our movement. This is the deal. Let me ask some questions as we come to the end here for you in Auditorium B. Some of you watching online, maybe on a go train or on a plane. Can I just ask an honest question? And please, I'd love everyone's attention at this moment more than I'm, Are you even part of the kingdom? Like, are you part of the kingdom? Here's the questions you need to wrestle with if you are or you're not. Do you accept Jesus for who he is? See, again, you can't take the Sermon on the Mount as a bunch of ethics that are nice. You will not be merciful deeply unless you encounter Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, the God in, God in flesh. He is the only King. He is the only way. And He's the only person who lets us know who God is fully. He's the only incarnation of God in history, period. If you do not accept the new Moses, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You will not participate in the new Exodus. Here's the second thing Have you ever acknowledged your deep poverty before God? Have you actually bent your knees? Have you, as a human being, said, No, you know what? <laughs> this is actually me. Have you mourned over your sin? Have you realized that you are spiritually dead? Have you actually said to God, I have lived, though I'm a good person, my whole life and trusted in me or religion, or I've said I don't really need you because I will be the master of my own destiny. 
Have you humbled yourself and said before a holy God who is also deeply in love with you because he created you and said, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. See, this is the posture you enter the kingdom of heaven. There is no other posture. And every person who's sitting in this auditorium and the other one who is a Christian, we will tell you, we are not Christians because we're good. We're Christians because we did this. So if that's you, would you just pray this for a moment? If you're going, oh my goodness, you've been preaching and I need the kingdom of God, then everyone bow their head here, auditorium, be online. Would you pray this prayer and just say, I need this. And then I'm going to speak to Christians for one last moment. If this is you and you want to enter the kingdom of God, pray this, dear Lord Jesus, I'm poor in spirit and I've realized my sin. Actually, I call myself a sinner for real and I ask for your forgiveness. I, at this moment, though I don't fully get it, I, I, I believe you actually died for my sins and you've risen from the dead. And at this moment, I turn from running my own life And I now ask you to run it. I want Jesus, the one on the mountain, to be the Lord of my life. I invite you to come into my heart and my life. And I choose to trust and follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. At the end of this service here in Auditorium B, there will be prayer people. And if you prayed that prayer, humble yourself, come forward and say, I just entered the kingdom and have a conversation. They'll give you something to begin. Now, I see wrestling in the crowd. Stop wrestling for a moment. I have to speak to Christians for one last moment. See, four, we all know how serious we are about God's move, yes? We know that we are wrestling with God for nothing less, nothing less than revival in this church and awakening in this region that has not been experienced since its, its inception. So here's what I need everyone to wrestle with all week, personally, in your connect groups, as you take the forms home. Listen, did you notice at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And the people sat underneath him. There must be an agreed upon posture in this church that Jesus is above all of us. And that we willingly Sit underneath him with no resistance. No resistance. That we say, oh, how I love sitting at your feet. Oh, how I want, long, desire that you speak whatever you must into me. Whether I've been a Christian for 40 years or I just got baptized last, no. Speak, Lord Jesus. You are the greater one. And I know that you are life and I need it. There must be an agreed upon posture that we sit under Jesus who sits on the mountain. There must be a request of the Holy Spirit in our church for a new obedience. That when Jesus says meekness, we say yes, Lord. When he says mercy, we say yes, Lord. You say, well, John, what's the take home this week? Here it is. Take these verses home this week. I say this and no one usually does it. Do this. Take your Bible home this week. Open up the Beatitudes And ask the Lord where the deficiency is in mercy or in meekness or in peacemaking or purity. Just say, Jesus, I trust you. Tell me. 
because I know you can make me clean and I know you can change me and I know my connect group's gonna route like, just Lord, speak, I'm open, I'm not hiding, speak, oh, how I want your kingdom to come. Why? And here's where I end. Because God promises you blessedness. This is not about drudgery or obedience with no life. This is about being blessed. This is about the kingdom of God coming on earth. This is about heaven touching earth. This is how it's supposed to be. This is the manifesto of our movement. This is Jesus coming and saying, you get to look like me. You get to show others what God looks like. This is love and holiness. So go before the king that we love and say, anything, Lord, teach me about mercy. Help me with peacemaking. Make me meek. Help me to give up control. Do anything, O Lord. Rally people around me because I want, oh, I want nothing more than the God of the universe to meet with me and have his kingdom begin to spread out in my region, in my neighborhood, in my family. Oh God, come and do this thing you promise us. Blessed is what I want my life to be marked by. This I guarantee you, for God says that he will bless you if you say yes to him. God, our Father, who elected us God, the Son who died for us, prays for us, stands in our place. God, the Holy Spirit who makes us like Christ, helps us understand the scriptures, brings us close. Oh, Jesus, normal, broken, everyday people, bring the kingdom of God, bring blessing in darkness. Help this church and other churches to show the world that the world and the status quo is not the final say because there is good good work afoot by the God of the universe. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, the new Moses, Jesus, the giver of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, our Savior, our King, our friend who chooses to bless us. Let's say it. Amen. 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 Let's sing to him together as a church.